Hi, everyone. Welcome to American Textiles Threading the Needle, sponsored by the National Council of Textile Organizations. I'm Kim Glass. I am the president and CEO, and today I am the host of this program. It is such an honor to introduce today's guest, Jennifer Knight. She is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Textiles, Consumer Goods, and Materials Industries, Critical Minerals, and Metals with the U.S. Department of Commerce's International Trade Administration and is a dear friend of our industry. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Kim. It's great to be here. Great. Well, you joined the Commerce Department as the head of the Office of Textiles and Apparel, a critical role for our industry, following a distinguished career in the U.S. textile industry. So before we ask you to update us on the latest happening in Washington, D.C. and the world of textile trade, maybe you could share with our audience a bit about your personal and professional background prior to your career in the government. Sure, I can share a little bit, Kim. So I, I actually come from a family with a pretty long history in textiles. I was fourth generation in the textile industry. My grandfather and great-grandfather were part of a, a pretty large home furnishings business in Georgia back in the day. And then when I was in my early 30s, I joined my father working in a narrow elastics business, which we ran for about 15 years before we sold it to an investment group. And then my last role, I was uh, president CEO of American Woolen Company, which was an old woolen mill up in northeastern Connecticut. You know, and your family is mostly out of this the textile industry at this point, right? They are. I had one uncle who did finish his career in the industry, and uh, he tells me he's still proud that I'm still attached to it in some way. So, How do you think some of that personal experience and your family history with the industry has kind of helped inform you know, you as you come into the, the U.S. government job? I mean, in, in many different ways. I mean, I'd say, you know, first of all, it's wonderful to uh, still be connected to this industry, even though there are you know, many people that I don't know anymore, but just understanding the industry and its history and what's happened over the last 40 years. And, you know, I just so admire that it's survived and, and companies are still surviving and thriving and finding ways to do that. But also, I think just generally having a manufacturing background in this role has been helpful because my office covers quite a number of industries, you know, ranging from building products to consumer products to critical minerals and metals. And, you know, at the end of the day, they're all manufactured products. So if you understand one thing and one supply chain, it, it applies in some way to another. Yeah. I mean, I think the fact that you have this history, the familial history, have been a leader in our industry, and you now represent a variety of industry sectors that are really import sensitive and very important to domestic manufacturing gives you a unique perspective. I think so too, Kim. I mean, I think about it, my background every day when I'm here. Well, now you've been in the role for over a year. What are some of your priorities and goals related to supporting the administration's vision of a worker-centric trade policy, which is intended to help domestic manufacturers and their workers and the importance of resilient supply chains? You know, I was trying to think about kind of how to answer that. And I would say that, you know, I think every day about the connection between the health of our domestic industries and, you know, its relationship to, to trade and to our larger supply chains. So I think, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats and this administration has recognized that. And, you know, manufacturing itself is important. It's important to manufacture to high standards. It's important to have fair wages. It's important that local communities benefit from industries. And, you know, we've, we have come around and realized that, that that's important domestically too. 
So, you know, I feel like I'm always waving the flag for our domestic manufacturing industries, including textiles, you know, and, and it leads you to think about a lot of things like workforce training, changing the perception of manufacturing so that young people want to come in and, you know, work in the industry. And that applies to textiles and it applies to other things as well. In terms of supply chains, it's really interesting to see commerce and the International Trade Administration start to put more focus on supply chains. And I think, you know, just developing expertise in what's happening in our, you know, domestic manufacturing and then understanding that resilient supply chains also mean diverse supply chains. So we've got to be doing things, you know, around the world, not have all our eggs in one basket. And, and with regard to textiles, I just say that I tell people almost every day that it's more than you know. And that, that a lot of people who've never set foot on the floor of a textile plant uh, domestically or in the region or elsewhere in the world don't understand until they walk in the door. And, and I think people would be so impressed if they saw what was happening today, for instance, in our industry. I so appreciate you saying that because as an industry, we try to educate key decision makers about the breadth of what the industry is making and the value to the local communities. And it's really refreshing to hear so much discussions in Washington about supply chains and resiliency. And I just want to take a moment and brag on your Otexa team. They do a fantastic job tracking critical information for our industry. The data analysis that the team provides has been a real resource for the industry to understand trends and also to understand business opportunities. So a big shout out to you and your team. Oh, well, thank you, Kim. I mean, I, I think the data is very useful and, you know, people ask about it every day. And the other thing we have is this Made in USA sourcing directory, which I think now has, I'm going to get the number wrong, but between six and 700 entries. I was at Outdoor Retailer a couple of weeks ago and I had at least eight people come up to me after the session and say, you know, I want my company to be listed here. So that's another great resource that that we have. That's great. And we're happy to continue publicizing that with our industry as people are looking for made in USA suppliers. So thank you so much for that resource. I'm glad you mentioned it. You know, you recently visited some of our members' state-of-the-art textile manufacturing facilities and saw firsthand the innovation, sustainability initiatives, the dedicated workforce of our textile industry. What do you see as both the opportunities and challenges to growing the textile and apparel investment, production, and sourcing in both the U.S. and the Western Hemisphere? And that's a great question. I mean, I, I think, you know, obviously we're, we're coming off of, what, a, a 40 or almost 50-year cycle of, you know, offshoring of manufacturing. So, you know, it's certainly challenging to think about what it would mean to recreate a, a really healthy ecosystem of producers here. And, you know, folks have managed to find a way to survive by, you know, finding very specific markets. But, you know, there, there are challenges around. A lot of businesses have also disappeared, right? And you can't just snap your fingers and have it all be recreated overnight. But I, I think that the trend towards re-regionalization of supply chains is real. And, you know, I think it's partly the role of the government to try to create an environment that is stable and that will help you know, help people, incentivize people to, to reinvest and, and, you know, use that American entrepreneurial spirit. You know, that that's uh, really what we're all about. And, you know, again, I think it, you know, challenges, obviously workforce development, obviously, you know, rebranding the industry. But but the, the facilities that I had a chance to see in the Carolinas when I went down, uh, Kim, were just awesome. And, you know, I would love to see more people in the administration come down because I think it it just it just really shows you that what we're doing is state of the art. 
First off, our industry loves Jennifer when you get out and about and you get out and about quite a bit to see our industry and really highlight some of the great things that our industry is doing, including on the environmental side, understanding that the U.S. textile industry is really leaning on sustainability and looking at addressing our greenhouse gas emissions with more investments in renewables or energy efficient production processes. So it's really exciting to have you highlight the industry and also to have the administration strongly support U.S. domestic manufacturing. Absolutely. No, I agree. And, you know, and, and it is it's it's very exciting to see some of the investment in in sustainability and in kind of advanced manufacturing processes. And, you know, I, it it bodes well for the future in my mind. Yeah, agree, uh, we totally agree. Well, it's pivoting a little bit, but uh, in the same vein, you know, and we've talked a lot about this, the U.S. CAFTA-DR agreement and our shared co-production chain between the United States and our Central American and our Western Hemisphere Free Trade Agreement partners is of vital importance to the U.S. textile industry because what we make, a lot of it is exported to those markets for further processing. Our industry was really proud to be with Vice President Harris as, as part of the call to action efforts about growing investments, not just in Central America, but in the United States. And having the certainty of our existing rules of origin is critical to these and future investments by the industry moving ahead, as you're, as you're mentioning, to try to capture growth trends, right, about regionalization of supply chains. We were delighted to have the administration's strong support for our industry, including those rules of origin. And I know Ambassador Tai at our annual meeting reaffirmed all that yet again, and you have at Commerce a number of times. Given Commerce's critical role in administering various provisions of this critical agreement and also for promoting trade and investment, what are your thoughts on investments taking place in the region to nearshore more textile and apparel production? And how can NCTO members leverage U.S. government resources for their own projects? Well, first of all, I want to commend the uh, the companies that have made an investment in the CAFTA-DR region or companies that are still considering doing so, because I, I agree with you, Kim. I, I think it's it's so important and it really does send a signal, you know, to the region that there's a future down there. And, uh, you know, this administration, as you said, has been very supportive of our existing free trade agreements and, and I think understands the importance of the rules of origin to incentivize that investment. And, you know, I, I do talk about that a lot because I, I agree that it's important. In terms of, you know, USG resources, you know, we talked about it before, but here at Commerce, you know, we've got the data, the Otexa data. You know, we welcome any chance for any company to kind of come to us and raise your issues. And we're happy to listen and to counsel and to, you know, share ideas. We also have a, an industry trade advisory committee, ITAC, and would love to see uh, more NCTO members, you know, join that. It's a chance to, you know, use your voice and talk about the issues that are impacting your company or that you're worried about or concerned about. And then, you know, come to us. And I think there are more resources across the USG. And it's, you know, it's important to to interface with the not just commerce, but other departments as well. Thank you for raising the Industry Trade Advisory Committee. And I know you personally and Otexa have done some outreach to our industry as of late. And I think you're going to get a few more industry participants as part of the, all of that. And thank you so much for that. 
you know, I have always found there to be such a great open door at Otexa, regardless of the if the issue is in commerce's jurisdiction or it impacts a company and it's affecting them from another administration arm. So I very receptive to how welcoming you have been to hear from the industry on both concerns, challenges and opportunities that the industry sees. You know, one of the biggest challenges facing our industry, and it has been for decades, it's, as you noted about the offshoring of certain elements of our industry or portions of our industry, is the need to hold China accountable. And we know that the Biden administration has used trade enforcement efforts associated with China, whether it's 301 tariffs. And also in the process of enforcing the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act because of the rampant labor abuses in Xinjiang associated with the cotton supply chain. This, unfortunately, these predatory trade practices, whether we're talking about subsidies, unfair labor practices, slave labor, environmental conditions, has really led to a competitive race to the bottom uh, that has undermined U.S. manufacturers and their workforce. What role does commerce play in administering China's trade enforcement actions? And do trade remedies such as anti-dumping countervailing duty cases provide a sound tool for domestic manufacturers to confront dumping? And sometimes from our industry, we, we hear from them about how expensive it can be for industry if they are, you know, on the receiving end of these terrible trade practices to actually put together and file a case. So I know there are resources there at Commerce that help help industry when they are confronting some trade challenges. So I think, Kim, this is not our unit in Otexa, but as you're you know, aware, there's a, another unit here called Enforcement and Compliance. And, you know, we at Otexa can connect you with those folks. And if, if somebody, you know, feels like they've got an anti-dumping or CBD potential case, they can call us and kind of walk their way through it. And I'll, I'll just mention that one of your members, Auburn Manufacturing, which is a small, woman-owned textile company in Maine, has successfully used this tool to, you know, fight against fabric that was coming in from China that, you know, that they were dumping. And actually, I think they they put almost 300% duties onto this product and then later found out that China had slightly changed the specs of the fabric. And they came back to Commerce again in last year, in 2021, and said they made the slight change and now they're able to dump again. And, and, and Commerce came back and put duties on that product as well. So I think it is a useful tool. And if it's something that you're considering, it, it's it's worth a phone call to figure out, you know, whether it's something you would like to pursue. Yeah, no, thank you. And I, I'm glad small manufacturers like Auburn Manufacturing have been able to utilize all of that. And I think, you know, we need to make sure that industry, when they have concerns associated with dumping, are in constant touch with the right arm of commerce to talk about the implications of all of that. As you're involved in crafting textile trade policy, you're the chair of CETA, the Committee for the Implementation of Textile Agreements, which essentially for our listeners is essentially an interagency committee related to textile policy that includes different arms of the administration, including USTR and labor and state. As you're involved in the crafting of textile trade policy to help bolster our domestic industrial base, I'd like to ask you, what do you see are as the major challenges facing the industry going forward? And also, 
separately or tied to it. How does sustainability play into trade policy these days? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the industry is going to continue to face issues around needing to be cost competitive in a global marketplace. But, you know, I, I think that the re-regionalization trend is real. And if we can start to recreate an ecosystem, one thing leads to another. So, you know, that would have its own momentum. But, uh, but in terms of sustainability and circularity, one neat thing about being on this side of the world is that it's much easier to have transparent supply chains and it matters to consumers. So if it matters to consumers, there's a way to figure out how to make it work from a cost perspective. And I think, you know, that's the challenge here is to take advantage of, of that situation and, you know, and, and grow the production on this side of the world. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, not just transparency for environmental reasons, but transparency to know where the cotton is coming from and to make sure that, you know, your supply chain isn't tainted by horrific labor practices. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, one last question, you know, what's your take on both nearshoring and onshoring? And do you expect this trend to continue or will it diminish, you know, as as global supply chains come back online or shifts happen? You know, what's your take? Are we in for a long haul that we're going to see some some new trends or, you know, what's your crystal ball say, Jennifer? Uh, well, I, maybe I'm an optimist, but I, I think, again, the, you know, if I'm repeating myself, but I, I think we're in a, a real long term trend of re-regionalization. And there's a reason not to put all your eggs in one basket. And there's a reason to diversify. And, you know, obviously not every product, not every industry, not everything will work on this side of the world, but certain things will work and people will find a way to, to make that happen. So um, I'm excited kind of to see what's going to happen over the next decade. Is there anything that you'd like to share, Jennifer, that you may have not said on this podcast today? No, I just want to, you know, commend everybody who's still working in this industry. And, and I wish you all much success for many years to come. Oh. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much. I mean, you have been such a great friend to our industry. We were so delighted when you were named in this role because you have this tremendous background and familial history with our industry that you just can't replicate here in places like Washington, D.C. And, you know, I know it's an honor to always serve in the administration, but it's also a sacrifice of time. And and I know you had to move in order to take this job. So we are grateful that you have taken on this role. And we love hosting you and your team at any time and just deeply appreciate your leadership and the work of the entire OTEXA team. So I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for the great discussion. What's the best way for our listeners to reach out to you should they have further questions? I will just want to thank you back, Kim, and tell you that I appreciate the industry support, but you can reach me anytime at jennifer.knight at trade.gov, and I'd be happy to hear from you. Great. I'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for joining us today and hope you enjoyed our show. Should you have any questions about NCTO's program, please email me at kglass at ncto.org. Also, please visit us at ncto.org and on Twitter at NCTO or LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks so much, Jennifer, and see you next time. Bye-bye.